0: China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchet, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Erica Franz, Assistant Professor in the Department of Political Science at Michigan State University. Today, we'll be discussing leadership succession in authoritarian systems. Erica, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start out our conversation before we dive into the specifics and dynamics of leadership succession by clarifying some terms here. In a lot of your work, we see the words authoritarian used, we see the words dictator used. I suspect there there may not be perfect overlap with how those terms are used in, in common parlance. When political scientists in your field are talking about an authoritarian system or a dictator or dictatorship, what do you mean?
1: Yeah, that's a good question to start things off because Um, it's important to make sure that we're all on the same page. So most people in the field today use the terms authoritarian, autocratic, and dictatorship interchangeably. And typically, this term references those political systems where leaders are not elected in free and fair elections. And in this view, a country could either be dictatorship or democracy. It's It's a binary perspective. There are some debates over hybrid categories that are in the middle, uh, gray zone regimes and so forth. But for today, when I'm talking about dictatorships, I'm basically just uh, viewing them as those places where leaders are not elected in free and fair elections.
0: So one of the things that I often hear is we tend to think or, or peg our understanding of a dictatorship based on historical antecedents or precedents, but it sounds like that doesn't necessarily perfectly overlap with the usage within academia. So for example, It doesn't just have to be to the level of Stalinist dictatorship to still qualify as a dictatorship when you use the word in your work, correct?
1: Yes, that's correct. And some terms that we sometimes still see thrown out in the media, most academics don't use anymore because they have kind of lost their relevance. And a good example of that is totalitarian you know, around the early part of the 20th century, totalitarian regimes existed. And that was a defining feature of some authoritarian systems. Now we don't really see many totalitarian states besides North Korea. So that term really isn't used by most academics. The terms have evolved in line with the evolution of authoritarianism.
0: So the issue we're going to dig into today is leadership succession. And of course, this primarily is a podcast about China. And as you've both written about in your own work, you've done some work on China, but you've also been looking at this issue of dynamics of authoritarian politics more generally, of which leadership succession comes up a lot. It seems to be a perennial difficulty or perennial concern when looking at authoritarian regimes is the regular peaceful transfer of power from one leader to another seems to be quite difficult. So just at a a general level, I wonder if you could talk a bit about why does it seem to be the case that authoritarian regimes struggle with leadership succession when it would seem that if a regime wants to remain in power and self-perpetuate, finding a way to peacefully transfer power would seem to be in in the interest of the regime. So why do they, they not seem to be able to get it right?
1: There's kind of two factors that are important there. The first is that dictatorships lack what we call third-party institutions that can enforce rules. So you might have the rules say that, you know, if somebody wins most of the votes, that they get to take that position. And in democracy, you would have a third-party institution like the courts that could enforce that rule. There is no actor that has that type of power in an authoritarian system. And for that reason, there's just a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen at pretty much every moment. And it's kind of analogous to international laws, right? So we have international laws, but whether they're going to be enforced is often uncertain because there is no overarching international authority that can ensure compliance and enforcement. And then the other factor that makes succession pretty tricky in dictatorships is that the individual leader often has different incentives than the regime elite's. So the regime elites want the regime to stay in power, right? And it's in their interest that there is smooth leadership turnover, but the leader often doesn't want to leave. And so from the leader's perspective, they might be pursuing different policies that ensure that they stay in office forever rather than policies that ensure that the regime can survive them once they leave.
0: So my understanding is absent democratic mandate that puts a leader in power in an authoritarian system, you basically have a small group of elite who are the constituency or the base of the leader. If we see a leader able to maneuver themselves into a position where they don't have to hand over power according to a sort of more formalized process, is that simply... Indicating that their coalition is controlling all the main levers and therefore it's it's not just the leader who wants to stay in power. It's his coalition or her coalition who also wants to, to see that power continue on.
1: Yes. Most leaders, even benevolent leaders, often view the system as better off with them in power for longer. So they are typically trying to do things like extend term limits, you know, maybe get rid of term limits altogether And sometimes this is out of good intentions, but it is kind of part of the whole natural process where political leaders try to maximize their own time in office. And in those instances where they don't do it, that is typically a reflection of the elites around them having more power to constrain them. And oftentimes in dictatorships, those elites come from a party institution or from the military. Where militaries are particularly united, they can be really influential because they have access to weapons, which increase the threat of ouster should the leader not behave in the way that they want.
0: So you just mentioned one reason that a leader may want to cling to power. And I suppose there's a whole host of reasons they may have grand ambitions and, and they feel like they're, they're just not quite done yet, you know, five or 10 years in office. So beyond those sort of aspirational reasons that a leader may want to stay in power, are, are there any other reasons that the leader may even just delay announcing a successor, for example, as we've seen in the case of Xi Jinping, we are a few years out from the next party Congress? Ordinarily, we would have seen a successor by now. In part, there was a more normalized grooming process to give a potential successor or successor candidates kind of time to build street cred through the military and in the state apparatus. Are are there kind of deeper, more Machiavellian reasons that a leader may want to hold off on announcing a successor, even if they understand the importance of eventually announcing one?
1: Yes, I think that from the regime's perspective, it is desirable for there to be grooming happening. And for that individual, the identified successor, to have a chance to illustrate that you know they're going to be a great leader and have substantial viable networks once that leader's time is up. So from the regime's perspective, it's a very good idea to have a successor identified, to reduce all the uncertainty of over-succession. But from the leader's perspective, as I mentioned earlier, the incentives don't necessarily align. For the leader to identify a successor can be somewhat risky. And it can be risky on a number of fronts. On the one hand, it could create divisions among the elite. They could see a backlash because they don't agree with the chosen successor. This happens quite a bit when leaders are starting to groom their sons. Who <laughs> Family members are an obvious choice because leaders can trust these individuals, but oftentimes their sons, I can't really think of any examples of daughters, but maybe those exist, aren't really very experienced and don't have the level of competence that elites would see as desirable. So identifying the successor can be risky because it could lead to some sort of backlash among the elite. It could also, in some instances, destabilize the leader's tenure because the identified successor could start mobilizing supporters and potentially try to get rid of the leader before the time is up. And for this reason, we don't typically see leaders identify successors, particularly where domestic institutions are weaker. It is not something the leader has to do, and they see their position as more secure if they don't identify one.
0: What is the danger of not announcing or not giving that successor sufficient time to be groomed and to move through through the process? Does that have any bearing or impact that, that you're aware of on how their performance is once they're finally in office?
1: We haven't investigated this empirically, but in general, if the successor is brought onto the scene in a quick manner, it's going to make it more difficult for them to govern once the leader leaves office. And a good example of this is from Iran, where Khomeini had identified a successor and then had a falling out with the successor leading up to Khomeini's death. And then quickly, hastily suggested that Khomeini should be his successor. Well, he lacked the religious credentials that were required to have the supreme leadership position. And so there was this big scramble to make sure that he had those the credentials that were necessary to change the rules, to try to gather supporters around him. And in those early years, many observers of Iranian politics were very concerned that the regime was not going to be very durable, given Khamenei's perceived weakness. So in general, the successor is better off if there is a longer period leading up to it, because there is more time to cultivate belief in that individual as a potential leader.
0: And why don't leaders, so beyond some what you mentioned of the leader doesn't want to become a, a lame duck, the leader that the so-called kind of crown prince problem, the leader doesn't want to anoint a successor, and then power begins accruing as people begin looking for the, the post-leader period. One of the things I hear a lot is it's, it's often just too dangerous to retire. You hear this a lot in discussions about Vladimir Putin. I myself am guilty of when talking about why it may be fortuitous for Xi Jinping to stay in power you know, he's come to power, at least ascended through power, through a a pretty significant corruption purge, which has smashed the iron rice pot of a fair bit of high ranking officials. Is there anything to that, that one of the reasons they may delay or cling to power is just when you're sitting in your DACA, you no longer have control of the security services, you're kind of at the whim of whoever the the existing, the new leader is?
1: Yes, there is quite a bit of evidence that leaders are gonna be more likely to cling to power the riskier their exit is. And by that, I mean, the higher the likelihood that they'll be either imprisoned or exiled or killed should they leave office. And the chance that those things will happen to them increases with power concentration. And the reason for this is that typically in the process of power concentration, you end up getting a lot of enemies because you end up engaging in some sort of purge or widespread repression campaign. And these things are going to make people, you know, understandably upset with your behavior, and are going to ratchet things up. So should you try to leave office, it's very possible that people are going to try to persecute you, sometimes even try to punish you for human rights violations. And these are things that are heavy on leaders minds, they are aware of it. So again, there is research that shows that The higher the chance of an unfavorable exit from power, the more likely leaders are to cling to power. And there's research that shows that the more power is concentrated, the more likely you are going to see one of these unfavorable exits where leaders are either imprisoned, exiled or killed.
0: So now going to a kind of coarse scenario we we're going to talk about today, which is we've got a leader, remains in power, feels it to, it's too, either it's too risky to retire or they have grand ambitions they haven't achieved yet. They cling so long that at least in the communist states, we call it going to see Marx, they die in office. What happens? And, and my assumption would have been before reading your work on this especially in, a, in a, a, a personalist dictatorship, but in any real authoritarian system where you've got the institutions of power have grafted themselves around this authoritarian leader that when there's this sudden absence of power, vacuum of power, that it must be the case that it's a fundamental threat to the regime. And I would have expected that you would see pretty widespread regime collapse with the death of the dictator. You've actually gone beyond my gross generalizations Quality, based on qualitative reading and actually done some 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 statistical and, and gathered some data on this. So so what does the data tell us about the, the death of a leader and what it means for a regime?
1: I started looking into this for the same reason and that I was curious because it seemed like, you know, as leaders were aging, there was a lot of speculation that we were likely to see an opportunity for fundamental change. And, you know, that seems very logical. So we looked at some colleagues and I looked at data from about 500 different dictators Since World War II. And we found first that death in office is fairly common. 16% of dictators do die in office, which was higher than what I was anticipating. But the other thing that was perhaps more shocking was that we found that death in office very rarely leads to any substantial regime change. In 87% of cases, the following year, the same regime is still intact. And that is a really high number, which illustrates that regime continuity is really the norm when dictators die in office. I think it's important also, though, to emphasize that 13% of the time something does happen. And the risk of or the opportunity for political transformation is certainly elevated when dictators die in office. But we shouldn't get our hopes up because it tends to be fairly rare, broadly speaking.
0: Now, when you were looking at that data about the 70% who die and then and then prospects for regime stability or stasis afterward, unpacking that more, is there anything within that that talks about regime type sort of party systems versus non-party systems? Are there any other generalizations that we can tease out from that?
1: Yes. In general, the stronger the party is, the regime support party, almost all dictatorships today have regime support parties. And the stronger that the party is vis-a-vis the leader, the more likely that we are to see more of the same and the succession process go smoothly. Conversely, the more concentrated power is in the hands of the leader, the greater the chance for some sort of regime change. That being said, it's important to remember, too, that in the rare instances where there is regime change following the leader's death, it is typically a transition to a new dictatorship, And very rarely a transition to democracy, but certainly as the party gets weaker, the opportunities for succession to be destabilizing when the dictator dies are greater. This is in large part because the stronger the party is, the more capable it is of enforcing rules within it, to have clear guidelines for how succession is going to work, and so forth. And there are a variety of indicators of party strength that I can get into, but you know, does the party have a strong local apparatus? Uh, Is there a separate individual who's in charge of the party as opposed to the leader, and so on and so on?
0: You know, one of the interesting things about China today under Xi Jinping, and I was just reminded of this as you were talking, is it seems that we have both dynamics present, which is a strong party apparatus, but also concentrated centralized power under Xi Jinping. And one of the interesting things is it seems as though, unlike during the Mao era, where where power was being concentrated by going around the party apparatus. Xi Jinping seems to be concentrating power through the party apparatus. I mean, it's very formalistic. It happens through announcing rules and policies and campaigns and guidelines and disciplinary guidelines. I know this isn't something that you specifically looked at, but if you were talking about these two dynamics of strength of party, but concentration of power, Is there anything about strength of party and concentration of power when it comes through the party apparatus?
1: I would actually say that this method of concentrating power, where it's done through these public rule changes, is becoming more common because leaders want to appear to be following the rules. And this is something that's more common since the end of the Cold War. We're just less likely to see. Abrupt purges. Um, you know, even in the case of China, the purge that happened was through this anti-corruption campaign, not just people overnight being arrested and imprisoned. So there's this attempt to present this facade that the rules still matter and that you know the party is going to be strong. We are increasingly seeing dictators outside of China extend term limits rather than just saying that they're going to rule by decree forever, which is truly their intention. They're undergoing this formal process where there's, you know, maybe even having a referendum vote that is fraudulent, but that has the people's seal of approval and, and so forth. So to me, those behaviors are actually consistent with trends all over the globe in authoritarian regimes where it's just a manipulation of rules that are happening, rules that are somewhat shallow to begin with. But rather than doing things like overnight behind closed doors, we're seeing these kind of more formal fake uh, <laughs> uh, efforts happening.
0: So but why, I mean, why is that? Is that because citizens have higher expectations for how a government, what it will look like and, and, and how it perform? I mean, is this like a consequence of kind of modernity and expectations, of, expectations about governance in the 21st century?
1: You know, we can only speculate what the reasons are, but it seems to be the case uh, via surveys that democracy has become the accepted form of government the desired form of government by most citizens around the globe. And there's really good survey data from Africa, for example, that the Afrobarometer data set that shows that most citizens support democracy. And and that's actually what they wish that they were being governed by. Now, in the case of China, they're not necessarily trying to promote this facade of democratic rule. But elsewhere in the authoritarian landscape, almost all dictatorships have multi-party elections that are held on a regular basis. And again, this is just to try to pretend that they are, you know, democratically legitimate to the international community and for their domestic audiences.
0: We've been talking about death, which, of course, is a very binary outcome. The dictator is either dead or not dead. And I guess in some ways, death at least gives some level of certainty to rivals, would-be rivals, or the rest of the system that, okay, we've now got to rally around a successor. Another possibility is sort of incapacitation, which is you can imagine, especially as a leader is aging, they have a heart attack, they have a stroke, they're, they're out of office for or they're not visible for a few weeks. We just had this maybe, maybe not with, with Kim Jong-un, who, who disappeared for a few weeks in late 2012 before Xi Jinping came to power. There was this two-week period where he went missing, and there's an interesting raft of speculation about what happened. Some people said he got hit in the head by a chair in an argument. Some people said he was sick. Some people said he was uh, plotting for the first phase of his rule. Nonetheless, I wanted to ask you, do we, or or maybe we don't know anything, but is there anything we know about how incapacitation of the dictator may affect this succession process or, or regime stability?
1: I think that incapacitation really freaks out most of the regime elite because they are concerned that the opposition is going to see this as an opportune moment to try to stage a challenge. And for that reason, when leaders are go missing in line with the things that you said, that there's all sorts of speculation about what could be going on, it is undesirable for leaders to be sick, for them to suffer strokes, all these things, because it can send a signal of weakness to members of the opposition. So for this reason, and we don't have data that measure incapacitation versus death. I wish we did. We haven't looked at that yet. But in terms of observations of what has happened in recent times, from my review of cases, it does appear to be the case that elites basically just quickly put their heads together and try to come up with some sort of plan behind closed doors to project a message of regime unity, that everything's going to be okay, the dictator's not actually sick, there's a plan in place, and so forth. So instead of leading to deep factions or uh, unrest, instead we actually tend to see elites rallying together to try to come up with a plan for what they're going to do.
0: The idea being that they understand that at that moment, political rivalry or competition may possibly lead to everyone's iron rice bowl being smashed via regime change or, or regime collapse.
1: Exactly. You know, the devil you know is, is better than the devil you don't know type of type of dynamic going on. For elites, they have a strong incentive to try to get together and perpetuate the regime because it could be that whoever assumes the leadership next in a new regime Uh, decides to purge them. There's just a lot of uncertainty about what could happen should the regime collapse. So for most elites, it's definitely in their interest to try to manage a smooth succession process and project uh, resilience to a leadership transition and so on. Now, this isn't to say that factions don't arise during leadership transitions. They do. But elites go to great lengths often to keep those somewhat concealed. And again, this is just to try to deter the opposition from trying to mount a more formidable challenge at that time.
0: This issue of the regime now putting a face of stability on in the wake of, of the death of a dictator, I think one of the questions that we would have as outside observers is how sticky is the new regime? And obviously there are examples where after the death of Mao, there was a public face of uh, succession and we had Hoa take over office, but we know there was the, the famous purge of the Gang of Four. The point being that it may look to us outside of observers as if they've rallied around a candidate, but of course, behind the scenes, there could be a a fairly raucous debate and competition going on. When you've looked at this data, what does it tell us about endurance of, uh, of successors? I know you've mentioned that in most cases, it seems like the regime is able to endure, but any thoughts about what are some of the dynamics that play out as a successor begins to take a hold? and what's your timeline for when you feel safe saying okay the regime has fully and firmly moved on from uh, from the death of the leader
1: yeah so the in general a safe zone would be somewhat like three to five years. And that just tends to be the period of time through which it takes institutions and and everybody else to kind of settle. So in the three to five year period afterwards, if the same leader is still in office, that is generally a sign that we're not going to see a sudden coup or something like that. That being said, just because the leaders are still in power doesn't mean that their tenures are super secure. And I Think about Venezuela under Maduro often with this in that he's had to struggle every day pretty much since uh, succeeding Chavez. So he's still he's still in power, but it hasn't been a very smooth ride. And the reason why it hasn't been a very smooth ride is because of the concentration of power that Chavez had. We do have research that shows that the more personalized the regime, the greater concentration of power in the leader's hands the more difficult it is for succession. And that is true regardless of whether the leader died in office, resigned, was unseated for some other reason. In more personalist context, as that level of concentration of power increases, the leader that succeeds the the original dictator is less likely to govern for a long time. And the regime is less likely to be long lasting. So with greater concentration of power, leaders themselves tend to govern for longer because they've hollowed out all these potential rivals, but the person who succeeds them and the regime as a whole tend to struggle and have the lifetime of the regime. So it's good for the leader, but it's pretty bad for the longevity of the regime afterwards. And it makes things very tricky for successors.
0: An expectation some of us may have is that if you've had a it's a pretty particularly long, hardline conservative rule of one dictator. They die. That may clear the space for the regime rethinking the political direction it wants to go in. That's the hopeful speculation on if Xi Jinping rules for the next 10 or 15 years, that, that his death may be a reset in China's political direction. What does the data tell us about prospects for political change?
1: Well, first of all, if anytime there's a leadership transition, it does open up opportunities for change, okay? You know, the, the prospect of change is greater than it would have been otherwise under the same leader, for example. That said, the a review of what has happened after the deaths of dictators suggests that usually we don't see substantial reforms under successors. We tend to see more of the same. And the reason, we think, is that oftentimes after the death of the leader, the successor that is chosen tends to be pretty weak. And the successor was chosen for that reason, because other elites are more likely to agree to a deal if they feel that this individual can be easily controlled. So these weak successors are just not capable of pursuing substantial reform, even if they, should they want to, because they are fearful they're gonna face pushback from within the elite. It's important to bear in mind too, that when leaders die in office, it signals that that individual and the elites around him have been pretty contented up until that point. There was no effort to internally oust the leader. If they die in office, they've, they've done all, the, all things right. So leaders are leaving in their wake a status quo where most elites were pretty happy with what was going on. Rather than be, being, you know, secretly wanting substantial dramatic reforms, they in general were happy with what was happening and pushed for more of the same under the successor.
0: Final question, and uh, slightly unfair, but I I wonder if you could put your speculative hat on. Obviously, we've been having this discussion because we're trying to bring more granularity to our understanding of leadership in authoritarian systems more generally. We're a couple of years away from the 20th Party Congress, which is when over the past 15 years or so, based on norms that have been accruing, we would have expected that this would be the end of the 10-year term uh, that the General Secretary of the Communist Party would have served, and he, up to this point, I was better he would step down. Of course, we had the ending of the term limits for the Office of the Presidency in March 2018. There is still a cloud that hangs around this issue. Xi Jinping and the, and the The Communist Party, of course, have not said one way or the other, what's going to happen. It's a bit of a mugs game, but I wonder if you could speculate what you know about the deep logic of of dictatorships. What's your expectation for uh, Xi Jinping's expected tenure of office? Should we be holding our breath for a surprise? Hey, just kidding. I am going to step down and and here's my new successor in in two years. Do you think it's more likely than not uh, that the old guy tries to hang on for longer?
1: Sure. So, you know, I'm not going to put any money on this, but but I'm happy to speculate. Given the behaviors under sheet so far, all signs point to him governing until he dies. And I say that because most observers agree that he's engaged in a power grab. And elsewhere in other authoritarian systems, one power grab enables a following power grab. So we see things lead to greater concentration as opposed to less. Now, if, you know, we were to be surprised and a successor would be named, my guess is that he would still continue to try to rule from behind the scenes. And we see that happening increasingly in dictatorships, the Putin style, you know, logic of, okay, I'm going to follow the rules and put this person out there, but I'm still going to be powerful behind the scenes. That would be my guess of what was happening if there is a successor named we would have to see some sort of effort, a pushback among the party elite or of a renouncement of certain titles that she holds to signal that there were different intentions. Because right now, all the signals point to she wanting to control pretty much everything.
0: Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that because I've been saying that and have staked my professional reputation on that being the case. So I would actually be willing to throw down gobs of money that that, that too is, is what's going to happen. But anyway, um, Erica, thank you very much. Um um, I think the work that you and some of your comrades who are, who are looking at the, uh, the the actual sort of deep political logic of of uh, dictatorships and authoritarian systems, sadly, is becoming more relevant to how we not only look at China, but look at the rest of the world. And this feels like a field where after the collapse of the Berlin Wall, we just sort of walked away from authoritarian studies for the better part of two decades. And so I'm really glad that there is this this group who are now... Not only just doing the, the uh, you know, tea leaf reading that us hacks and think tanks at DC do, but actually really digging into and creating data sets on this. It's it's really important work. So, so thank you very much for your time today and, and for your work more broadly.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, the Asia Chessboard, China Power,